This is HRT, a podcast featuring interviews with HR leaders, researchers, students, and influencers. HRT takes trending topics and research in human resources, steeps them for 30 minutes or less, and leaves you with fresh, brewed ideas on how to drive high-performing, inclusive organizations and create meaningful work experiences. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD, the graduate programs in human resource development at Villanova University. Hello, everyone. Welcome to HRT. I am Bethany Adams, one of your two hosts this season, joined by Helen Nelson as my co-host. And I love HRT, but truth be told, I think I will always be a coffee drinker. On today's episode of HRT, Helen and I sat down with Todd Corley. Todd is an adjunct professor in the Villanova HRD graduate program. He was also one of the course designers for our diversity in a global economy class. And Todd has been in the DEI space for a very long time. His work at large global organizations has helped shape how many companies think about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. In this episode, our final episode of the season, we want you to think about the strategic nature of DEI work. DEI is more than hiring initiatives or unconscious bias training or inclusive holidays. As you will hear from Todd, DEI is constant change management. The work is never done, never over. It has to be a part of the strategic fabric of the organization to truly make a difference. So let's drop into this episode and get Todd to share a little bit about his background and the companies he has worked for. By way of introduction for me, Todd Corley, I've been on the inside as a chief diversity officer, mostly in roles that have been brand new. For some reason, I'm attracted to gigs that haven't been done before, probably because of my fear of hearing someone say to me that we tried it and didn't work because that kind of rubs me the wrong way. So most of my roles have been new roles. Probably when I think about Highlight Reel, Starwood Hotel some years ago when I went to figure out how the DNI strategy was going to launch, gave me a sense of how to do that work with new branding. So the W Hotel, if I'm dating myself, was a new concept for that chain back then. So the whole conversation around DNI from a perspective of a new customer, which wasn't a Sherrod or a Weston or, you know, a St. Regis property, you know, guest. Yeah, so left there and went to Abercrombie to lead their DNI office, which for the record was a heavy lift and it was it was messy. So I spent 10 years there trying to build the workout. And what I learned in retrospect was it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I found myself in front of millennials, which at the time this so this is 0405, where I'm dating myself again. Facebook was a year old, Twitter was a year and a half away from the first tweet. So if you manage this whole intersection of social connectivity and young people coming to work for the first time in in large number, you've got this whole notion of a generational shift of values. You've got social connectedness. You have a conversation around the work and the notion of how we're going to do this work where younger people are now saying, hey, I see people in my circle, my friends group that don't look like me. How come they don't work here? And that was largely the story at ANS because 90, 90, 90% of the folk were there 40,000 people were white. So it was quite the journey to figure out how to get that done. We benefited from their energy and their enthusiasm, quite honestly. And it gave us a good start. And we, we turned it around and it's like six years after hiring 60,000 new people, 
and adding 300 stores. We grew the brand from, I guess, 40,000 employees, 100,000, from 90% white to about 55% non-white. So this trajectory of people on top of growth was a gift, but it was a gift of young people who look at the world in a very different way and gave me the enthusiasm to figure out how to do this work and hold myself accountable. And also how to check, you know, old folk bit accountable. We could place of four to five different generational groups, including the 70 year old, you know, white CEO who I reported to who saw the world a bit differently. I'm curious what your, and actually given all of your experiences, I am very curious what your answer will be to this, but what's your DEI soapbox? So like, is there something that gets you just fired up where like, if you start talking about this subject, you're going to hear me on a rant about it. And it can be like a positive or a negative, like something that you get so passionate about or something that you just get so fired up about because people have it wrong and you need to correct them. So what's your like DEI soapbox? I think the thing that gets me riled up about this work is that it's not an initiative about programming. It's not an initiative about hiring. It's a, it's a change process, right? So you have to develop a change management framework and that you've got to figure out how you're holding someone accountable, how your brand strategy looks, how are you communicating inside or outside, how are you training people to be more aware, to, more, to be more alert. And I think the word now we use is woke. You gotta think about how do you get employees to be involved and how do you get leaders to be committed? And if you don't look at what I call those change drivers, then you're going on this road of doing the work where this hope is that you kind of, you know, praying that it's going to work without having a connected look at the work. So for me, whether it be inside retail or hospitals or hotel chains, and I've been in all of them, the notion of, let's say, measuring the customer experience is as important as it is recruiting and then also auditing inventory count. So the ANF example was we were measuring after I got there, the notion of what people felt like when they walked into the store from the perspective of a black or white customer saying, did you get greeted in the first 15 seconds or not? So that by itself is one thing, but the parallel is, am I now looking at inventory count? Because if I'm looking at inventory count in stores where that measurement is actually favorable, where there isn't a difference between a white male or a black man walking in, then I'm presuming, and we saw this there, that there was a better chance that people were going to buy and stay longer. Whereas stores that didn't do that didn't buy and stay longer. So the inventory account suffered from the, from that perspective. Point is, you change not only how you audit the experience, but you also now change and you look at what that does to the financial and the bottom line. Oh, and then by the way, the added was they recruited a lot from the floor. So if people were color, were staying there longer, the numbers were better. So to me, all those things are interwoven. So I think my soapbox is, if you think about this work as, you know, singular and linear, then you're way off because it's not that easy. It's not that simple. It's not that clean and it's woven into everything else. And if it isn't, then you're not doing the work the right way because looking at it for a gain of, I want two more black people, one somebody in a wheelchair and you need to start checking boxes. You don't think about the other stuff. So my soapbox is the work isn't simple. Don't ask me to come into an organization and just, you know, hope that the numbers change tomorrow. And I want to see you know, more Black directors two days ago. That's just not the way it works. I totally track um, everything you're, you're saying. And certainly, like, what's important to a business leader. What I'm finding 
in spaces now is the leader as a human being is either not aware, has not started this journey at all, very uncomfortable being vulnerable in a space and also presenting as a leader. So how much of this work are people personally responsible for beyond you know, the business rationale and the hits that they may take to their bottom line if they don't take it seriously? One has to take some personal inventory first. One has to own what it is that they have not done. And instead of trying to find a black or brown person, you know, post George Floyd to say, explain to me what this ha- what happened, you yourself as a white manager, let's say, need to do that on your own. You can certainly counsel, we can talk about it and chat and have discussion, but one has to go really deep with where they are. And I, and I have another client and I'll share this with you. So he's a white CEO, privately held company, finally came to grips with talking to someone about the, the, their reaction to a comment made in that person's presence, but at the time they didn't own it. And he said to this person, listen, I, I wish I had done it differently. And this was, this was like, I mean, we're talking years apart from the event until that moment happened you know, it may have been that moment of reflection for him to say, you know what, I've got to go back and clean up with some of my stuff. And this person's a great guy. Like, I love him. But you got to own that stuff first. And if you don't own that, then to go hire a CDO or, you know, fund a BRG or pay for an event at the whatever group it is, such and such, that's kind of superficial stuff. It doesn't really make sense. So I think you're spot on. You've got to have personal inventory, personal accountability. You've got to own it. And you've got to say that your stuff stinks and like figure out how to clean it up. Todd, are you seeing, you know, you brought up George Floyd and the post-George Floyd, like I think changes that we're seeing around leadership starting to recognize their own responsibility in exactly as you're describing, right? Taking ownership over their own learning, their own education, what they don't know. Are you seeing that with some of your clients? How have you seen the, you know, situation that happened this summer and like all of the conversations that we're all having about it? Is it different than what we've seen before? Because we've seen instances like George Floyd for years, but is it is it somehow different now? And how are you seeing it impact your clients? Yeah, no. So I think I think this is more. I think this is is far far different than whatever what than what I have ever seen. I think because the pandemic made people watch it from home, like you were you couldn't move, like you were there. That, that's one one piece. Yeah. Two, I think the buildup is real. But I also think, you know, the shift of generational attention is different, meaning younger people are a little bit more impatient now than they've ever been, which they, they should be. And instead of expecting that things are going to change through a policy, they're like changing things like radically, like change it tomorrow. And, and they're not like waiting around for it to happen. I think because it was a collective moment, we all had to respond to and, and, and could not turn away. We've reacted differently at the same time. What I caution people to do is think about where's your organization really? So a year from now, if you just hired somebody to be your head of diversity because you think it was a new job to have and you should have one because everybody else has one, then you're still stuck on stupid because it's not just simply just doing that. It's about, is that person going to get something done? And what I mean by that, and I'm being really honest, and I've said this in writing, if the roles that are being hired for now are reporting anywhere other than a president a CEO, a COO, a chairman, I think that they are jobs that are challenging because that likely means they're reporting to HR, which 
again, in, in my friends in the HR space, I love to death. But oftentimes the things that you have to reconcile are hiring patterns, talent reviews, you know, protocols, performance review stuff, all those things are owned by HR. So that means I'm not being critical of the person in which I report to as a CHRO trying to tell them to do their job differently. And they're probably saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on, don't call me out like that. So if we are now talking about this work a year from now, I think we're gonna find places most likely that are, that are falling short, those places that don't have this role as head of diversity reporting into somebody who is overseeing the enterprise. That's just my opinion. And I think if you look at the evidence, some anecdotal, some probably for real, like, you know, somebody did an analysis of it. If you don't have control or influence over supply chain, marketing, communication, product or branding or HR, and I'm not talking about that, it, those are work streams that you own, but they are work streams that you influence, which you can't always do easily by being behind the HR person, then you're not really affecting change in that organization widespread. So, you know, I think that's one of the cautions that I would call out. But to answer your original question, the work is different than it has ever been. There's a sense of urgency about it. The sidebar is for companies who are listening to the, the podcast today, be mindful of who you hire for advice because the work has also been hijacked a bit. And I'm just going to be honest. Thank like, you. <laughs> I, no, I was waiting for that part. Yes. There, there are people with shingles up saying, you know, I do diversity work and I've, you know, done this X and Y, Z, and you're still two years old. So you don't really know the work. And then I'm not, I'm not saying your passion won't get you there because the point is if people are looking for people to support them, look in places where there are credible people who do this because there are many. So just be really mindful of that for, for all people involved in this work. You started earlier talking about this like generational shift and what we're seeing in organizations. And I know that this like goes into your wheelhouse, your time at Abercrombie working with all these different generations, but this sort of newer generations, our millennials, you know, our, our newer generations are recognizing and demanding change early. I'm curious how you are seeing that impact some of the work that you're doing now with all of these organizations. So, so I would say, you know, I love the change or extension of it. I mean, I've seen it from a unique perspective. But, but there are also call-outs, and I, and I, and I say this to, to both, you know, I say both all sides, meaning the younger side of this discussion and the older side of the discussion, and that the enthusiasm from younger people, you know, who want this work to change yesterday is one side of the conversation that we all have to listen to. What my advice to them has been, and, and this is in role that I also, you know, have, you know, I chair, you know, International Foundation of High School Students is is a way for that word those words to be delivered so that people can hear it because sometimes it's not going to be heard in a way that they want the change to happen because older folks are getting to be impatient or think that the way it's being delivered is rude or there are other things that have to be managed which basically means there's a there's a way that for change to happen and there's a way for change to stick i prefer to have change happen that sticks as opposed to change happens because it makes somebody feel good that we did something so mm -hmm. what i find myself now talking about is making sure that younger people who are enthusiastic and are, are passionate are directing their energy in a way that those who are in charge, let's say boomers or exiters in places, hear it and hear the feedback in a way that they can own it, process it, deliver on it, and empower younger voices to help them do that as opposed to them being soured by it. And so I have a client in the media space where I would call it 
my word, an uprising of younger people who said, Yo, we want this to change tomorrow. And the older leaders were like, you don't have a problem here because we are who we are. And they're like, are you kidding me? Yeah, you do. And they figured it out. And to the credit of the senior most person that I've interacted with, he said, you know, at his age, like, I want to figure this out. So I've been with him on phone call, phone calls and Zoom calls with about 50 to 20 young people who are talking to him as a 60-year-old plus man who is listening and taking in the feedback. But the way the exchange is happening is happening in a way that both sides are respecting each other. And mm-hmm. that's moving the discussion forward. And if it had been any anyway differently, meaning he resisted or the young people were loud and want to protest and not, you know, understand that things happen at different paces and different rates, then we would still be stuck and we're not. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal to see it happen. I've been fortunate enough to be a part of that conversation every day. So, you know, seeing it come together where all the sides of the generational coin appreciate the way that the discussion is being had, I think is a way for it to be successful where we lose opportunity is when there's resistance and stubbornness on, on either side of that conversation, that coin, and one gets frustrated with the other one and they don't do anything. Yeah. I've, I've seen that energy up close. It's, uh, <laughs> it's certainly like hard to ignore, sometimes interesting to harness. Can you talk about DEI as a value proposition? So people, younger employees know who they are they want to work for companies that are socially responsible and they want to see the stats and they want to see effort and they want to see a commitment certainly to DEI. So can you talk about that from your perspective and, and how employee, you know, if employers don't get on board with this, you know, they're going to be selected out of having really a really competitive workforce. Yeah, no, Helene, I think you're right. I think the employers who resist that, confidence, I'll call it, in younger people are the ones that are going to be finding themselves to be irrelevant brands in the back of the line of hiring and hoping that they may still can rely on the fact that their name is whatever company that you want to call sexy and that is attractive enough. The truth of the matter is when a company's true value has been shown, has been talked about, promoted on social media about a best place to work, you know, really conscious about social connectedness, community, um, supporting of movements that are authentically seen. Those are the companies that are going to, you know, far, far um, outdistance the other ones. So, so I, w- I would say if organizations are not thinking about that, they should start to figure out how to pack their boxes and, and, and you know, shut down because they're not going to be relevant. I mean, you know, I, I've been at this work long enough to know that some of the challenges that I think, you know, even ANF had was a slowness to, to have people see the other side of the brand that I knew from the younger people that I would work with, but your brand's got to be in front of that and let go of some old ways also. So the retail space is fickle. So if your brand isn't doing some of those things, it matters. If you are a brand as a media publishing company, same thing, no different than, you know, something in oil and gas space. I mean, somebody who's doing great work in Alaska and, and trying to make sure they're taking care of the wilderness and, and the wild and water, you know, will probably do better than the companies in that space that aren't doing those sorts of things because the environment matters. I mean, this whole notion of ESG, right? Environmental social governance is a big deal. I think it's the next wave of the work. 
that along with, you know, AI. I mean, how you think about bias that is baked into certain processes, that matters. And I think younger people are going to start to ask for that evidence about what are you doing to not be that company? So I think it, it behooves people to figure it out, but also behooves a discussion we probably won't talk a lot about today for boards to figure out how they diversify their boards directly with people who understand these issues and not just, you know, the certain things of audit committee work, like that's boring. But right. the investment, where people are, where companies growing, how they're doing the work, who they are, what the CSR stuff looks like, all that stuff matters at the end. Mm-hmm. For sure. Todd, you just hit on something that I think is a really interesting topic in DEI that we don't we don't hear enough about. And it's some of these challenges of, bi- like you were just talking about bias in artificial intelligence. We're moving so fast in these companies that we're like, ooh, AI can do this for us. Yay, let's give it to, you know, let's let it do that. What, I'm curious what some of your concerns are about those kinds of challenges or challenges you see for this work in the future with some of the technology that could actually like set us back in this work. Yeah, no, I, I'm concerned about it because, you know, when an algorithm is, is created or code is done, and I'm not a technology person, right? Although I did take a class in AI because I didn't understand it. Enough. <laughs> I wanted to do that. I did that. It was fun. But, but I took it purposely because I was trying to figure out how this whole notion, you know, played out in the DNI space. So essentially this, when you think about coding baked into processes, those things which are largely done by white men who are making these codes and these rules you know, start to weed out things that are more feminine or black or brown or whatever it may be. And you've seen stuff even in recent, you know, articles around facial recognition and the software. I mean, I think it's a frontier we have to be in front of because if we don't, there's going to be so much damage done down the road because these things are going to become common tools and they're going to be baked into a process. And I think, I don't think it's, I don't think it's disparaging because it's out there. But one company that we talk about, you know, is a company who use software for recruiting purposes and they found themselves, you know, finding women being discarded because the terms that were being used for them were more, you know, feminine as opposed to more masculine. I mean, you can't do that. But the point is that that's on the market and it's being sold. The next company picks it up and doesn't think about it. So it, it worries me a great deal. But it's also why I say, and it's back to something you both mentioned, your DNI person should be really aware of those intricacies because all the passion in the world doesn't allow you to figure that part out. Like if you don't understand AI, but you love, you know, the dinners and the events and you want to have, you know, everybody have their own month and their own day, you want to celebrate Juneteenth and Hispanic Heritage Month, I'm all for it. But you got to figure out the other stuff that's structural. Because if you don't figure out that structural stuff, you're going to find yourself behind the curve on making the work really last for the long haul. Okay. So Todd, to close us out, we're, we're kind of talking about this like future work, right? What do you see as being most important for the future? Like where, I mean, there's, <laughs> I see your head <laughs> and you're like, Oh, how do I even answer that question? Right. But it is, I mean, like this is, one of our last episodes of this season. And I want to leave people thinking about what they should be doing and where we should be going in the future. And I don't know if that's an optimistic or a pessimistic view, but I'm, what do you think? Like, what, what are your hopes for the future? Where do you see us needing to focus either now or in the future? So there's no pressure there, right? None at all. (laughs) I 
I guess what I would say with the attempt at trying to be profound in the last few minutes is I would say that if, if people can focus on the work and focus around the word of trust, then I think we'll be better served down the road. Because I think for me, trust is that conversation that fixes a lot of this work. One, it makes us feel more vulnerable to other people. It allows that vulnerability to not be you know, misused or mishandled because the person on the other side feels like they have a gift in getting to know you, understand you and, and know where you're from as opposed to where are you from, right? Those are two different questions. But it also allows me to not have my mind wander you know, you know, kind of away from things when I wonder if, you know, did Helene give me that feedback really because she, she believes in me or because he's just trying to get me out of the office. Mm -hmm. So building trust, I think if we can figure out how to do that, especially now with where our society is, where we are with divisive language, where we are with, you know, faking what is not fake. If I can trust somebody, they're a lot more likely to have more inclusive experience with someone, probably more likely to give more of my discretionary effort and energy at work every day because I, I don't believe it's going to be, you know, criticized. And I think it's fluid across the globe, right? Because if we can have trust wherever we sit, whatever our zip code is, whatever part of the world we live, sit in, I think we'll be, we can be good at this work down the road. I, that's that's my, my perspective. So I would leave the audience with try to build trust figure who's in your circle, try to make sure that trust circle is broad and diverse, racially, ethnically, culturally, and lean into some discomfort so that you can have that same level of trust with somebody else. Oh, I love that Todd ended us there with trust. We have been talking about everyone's soapboxes this season with HR or DEI, and I haven't mentioned this yet, but my HR soapbox is trust. I truly believe that if we as HR professionals trusted our employees more, we would see better work, better development, and better engagement. Most humans are good humans, and too much of our work in human resources becomes policing and policymaking to prevent the few exceptions to this norm from hurting our company. And while I'm not ignoring the necessity of that in human resources, I believe it needs to be less of the norm and trust needs to be what we do more of because trust breeds trust. And research tells us that the more we trust our employees and that they trust us, the better their performance will be. And like Todd said, trust is the key to our future efforts in diversity, equity, and inclusion. It opens us up to conversations and opportunities that we may have not even knew were needed. Trust requires vulnerability, but that vulnerability will take us so much further than being closed off. I think Todd's message is a perfect ending to this season. Building trust as you go in this work. Think about who is in your trust circle, both personally and within your organizational strategy. Broaden that trust circle racially, ethnically, culturally, and lean into some discomfort. That is where we all need to go to move diversity, equity, and inclusion work forward into the future. 
All right, everyone, what an amazing season. I want to throw a giant thank you out to my co-host, Helen Nelson. It has been so great to have someone on this journey with me this season, and I know our listeners have benefited from her diverse voice, experience, and perspective. Thank you so much, Helen. Now, for those of you who have listened to the entire season, the SHRM recertification code for the three credits is... 21 dash X A T H four. Again, that's 21 dash X A T H four. I hope that you enjoyed listening this season and we cannot wait to get back to you next year with season four. Remember, whatever you are drinking, coffee, tea, or something a little bit stronger, we hope it will lead you to fresh brewed ideas that will help make work better and more inclusive for all of us. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of HRT. As your thoughts from today's episode, Steve, share with us what you are brewing using the hashtag VillanovaHRT. That's hashtag VillanovaHRTEA. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD. To learn more about the graduate programs in human resource development at Villanova University and for all the links and notes from today's episode, visit the Villanova HRD blog at VillanovaHRD.com.